something beside me A light to the kerosene And the places aren't real anymore And the faces don't say anything In the silent light Of the Welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good. To get early access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. This episode will soon be available to everyone, courtesy of the new documentary film series, Four Died Trying, which premiered on November 22nd on Apple TV and other streaming services. Four Died Trying explores the extraordinary lives and calamitous deaths of President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Senator Robert F. Kennedy. The next episode should be available around New Year's Day, I am told. The filmmakers have had problems getting the rights for archived footage. I suspect that's because there are powerful forces that want to keep our history locked away forever, just like they want to keep all those JFK documents locked up forever as well. But the truth remains the truth, whether our regime wants to acknowledge it or not. I hope you enjoy the show, and deepest thanks again to Four Died Trying. In today's episode, I am joined by Lawrence Wilkerson. This is not Lawrence Wilkerson, obviously. This is BB Netanyahu, and he'd probably want to make sure everyone knew that. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel, former chief of staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, and current distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary. I'm really grateful to Mr. Wilkerson for taking the time to speak with us. He's a very gracious person, and I think that many years from now, he will be remembered as one of the few U.S. officials to speak honestly about the rot at the top of the U.S. empire. Professor Wilkerson, it's great to have you back. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. So you have been uh, a rare person who has, from a, a, a position within to or with a foot inside the establishment, at one point being in a presidential administration, uh, you've, you have since become a critic of U.S. imperialism. And uh, I myself have became a bigger critic of U.S. imperialism after Obama was victorious and he continued all those Bush policies. So people have seen the U.S. headed in a very bad trajectory for a long time, a minority but have you ever seen the U.S. position in the world looking so bad, looking at Ukraine and Gaza right now? Uh, and have you ever seen the, this much just craziness in, in, the, in the U.S. management of the world or what it, it was management of its empire, whatever we want to call it? No, I have not. Um, I've never seen, to put it bluntly, such incompetent leadership. It is incompetent across all three branches for the first time in my knowledge of our history all the, back, all the way back to colonial times. The Supreme Court, the Congress, and the executive branch are incompetent, or they are competent in areas where they shouldn't be. <laughs> Whether it's interfering with uh, the economy, which the Supreme Court started doing majorly when it passed Citizens United, 
Uh, we now have the greatest billionaire class, I would say trillionaire class, because it's approaching that in the history of the world, I think, with the exception of maybe some kings and queens back in the old days. The maldistribution of wealth is just humongous in our country right now, much worse than 1929. And of course, the expenditures on our wars now, $33.8 trillion aggregate debt caused partly by that, just make this even worse. So yes, I think it's as ill-managed an empire as history has seen in some time, with the exception possibly of some of them, like the Roman, at the very end. And that's worrisome. That is very worrisome because uh, they were known for their excesses, but as excessive as they were, they didn't have nuclear weapons. Uh, and so eventually their own, the, the own forces of their empire were their undoing, as is normally the case with an empire. Now we have this nuclear issue as well to where we can't rely on the normal forces that sweep away empires to actually succeed in a way that doesn't get us all killed. I mean, that has to be something that sober people are thinking about. That's an excellent point. My daughter, who was a second lieutenant in the Army after graduating from Georgetown and then a Secret Service agent when they recruited her away from the Army, now a, a farm lady, if you will, uh, she said to me the other day something that was uh, really disturbing because I realized the correctness of what she was saying. Dad, if we go to war with China... As you say, we will lose badly in the first 30 days. Casualties the Americans have never seen before, the ones alive today have never seen before. So we'll go nuclear. We will not want to lose. The American people will not want us to lose. They will not even like the appearance of a loss. I mean, I think we'd win in the long haul, but the long haul might be years. Um, she's right we would probably initiate the use of nuclear weapons in that circumstance. That's very frightening. I, don't, I, I only disagree with her in that I don't think that we would win. I think it would quickly bring in the Russians and it would be the end of the world um, if it were to come to that. Uh, so I think it's even worse. It, it, it would be a close run thing, but I, I think there was an article written about this about a year ago by a, a, a military professional whom I have some respect for and he just put the two defense industrial base potentials, if you will, what really won World War II for us, um, against each other, Russia, China, the United States. And while China's looks pretty formidable right now, and ours is falling off every day, China builds six ships a month. We can't build one a year, for example. But ours is more robust, more creative, more, um, shall we say, resilient. And so after, say, six months or a year of what would be a conventional war, um, we would probably be able to respond in a way that we could at least bring it to a halt in a negotiated settlement. Uh, but we won't do that, he said. We won't do that. We will be so alarmed and so outraged that the first 30 days we'll go nuclear. I, I think that's a very very reasonable assumption given the circumstances and we're the ones just check it out from the abm treaty during my administration on who have dismantled every nuclear arms control agreement achieved during the cold war there's nothing now vladimir putin is even talking about withdrawing from the comprehensive test ban treaty 
that would be the the last straw, if you will, because probably means that he and Xi Jinping have worked some kind of deal out whereby Xi Jinping wants to build out his nuclear weapons complex as rapidly as possible. We'll get plutonium, high-grade plutonium from Putin, and he'll have to test somewhere. So he could test in Russia underground. I don't know of a really um, acceptable facility in China, though Xi Jinping would probably do it anyway. Um, but testing would be necessary in that event. And so maybe that's the reason Putin's thinking about and has said he's thinking about withdrawing from that final treaty. Right. That would be a disaster. But I sort of, I mean, you can grasp the position that they're in where they where there's a logic to that. Yes. I mean, they, as they say, we're not, the U.S. is not agreement capable. And this is, so why even hold on to any of these agreements if they're, if they're, even if there's a chance that they're putting you more at risk of dealing with the U.S., which is which seems to want to hold on to empire above all else. And that's the sad reality of it. I think that if I were in their shoes, Xi Jinping or Putin, or for that matter, anybody else in the world contemplating it or even in possession of it, say our allies, I'd be very worried uh, about us in 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 regard to the nuclear situation, which I think next to climate change is the number one threat confronting the globe right now, which tells you something about our priorities. Uh, we're over there in Gaza, we're in Ukraine, and the two biggest threats we have, we're wasting trillions of dollars in order to confront minor threats as opposed to the major threats, which we may just take us all out. Right. Yeah, this is extraordinary. And these, there are two unfolding spectacles here uh, that are more, they're not in the nuclear realm as of yet, but they have potential there to escalate to that if things went sideways. Um, where do, what's your, what's your assessment of what the, what do you think is going to happen in Gaza in the coming weeks, at least, or in the longer term? I mean, I feel that they are, they could, they can kill everyone, or at least most of the place, and flatten it. But the world will be increasingly horrified, and Israel will be, will be more of a pariah than it already is. I mean, what what is the end game here? Bibi Netanyahu has said categorically that he doesn't care about the world's opinion. He's even said that he doesn't care about the opinion of the United States. Open parentheses because I can handle them. Close parentheses. I'm not making this up. These are things that he's actually said. I think he had no strategy. I, I don't subscribe to the theory that they knew this was coming. They knew it was going to be dramatic and they knew it was going to give them ex an excuse. Like some said about 9-11 with regard to the United States, there were people who took advantage of it, yes, to react way over what was necessary. But I, I don't buy that theory that the Israelis planned this. But I do buy the theory that I saw no strategic thought in the beginning, right after October the 7th, maybe understandably, given the rage that it created and Netanyahu's promise to everyone that they had the best security under him that they'd ever had. And that just totally blew that out of the water. But what I saw fall into that void of strategy was a strategy. And that strategy is clear from the past based on what they've done in the West Bank in particular, we're starting to do in East Jerusalem and in the Golan. And that is eradicate the Palestinians. 
So they are now exercising their ability to do that on a whole scale basis all across Gaza. I think his theory here, his strategic theory here is, I'm going to eliminate as many Gazans as I possibly can, Palestinians. They're also doing it, of course. This is lost sight of mostly by us right now. Still in the West Bank, still in the Golan, and they're getting ready to start it in East Jerusalem in a big way. So they're going to eradicate the Palestinians. That's their strategy. We're going to kill as many men, women, children, dogs, cats, whatever gets in our way as we possibly can. And we're going to push the remainder into the desert. We're going to push the West Bankers into Jordan. We're going to push the people in Gaza into the desert, into the Sinai. And Egypt, to hell with you. And Jordan, to hell with you. That's what we're going to do. And then we're going to be greater Israel and we're going to be safe. That is nonsense in what I just said. There's no way they're going to be safer. And they're going to be, as you said, a pariah. And those who back them to the hill, like us, are going to be the same. That's what I, I where the, the sort of schizophrenic response from the White House, where they sometimes say this or that, but then, of course, they have all those aircraft carriers parked right outside, and they keep sending all these weapons, and Congress keeps passing this and that resolution. I, I, do you know anything about the situation at the top of the White House and who might be you know, under the, not not overtly, but like through back channels saying, please show some restraint here. Or what do you think is the way it's playing out at the top? Because I don't see this as being in the, the interests of the administration, except for one, I guess one caveat would be it has distracted from Ukraine, but I don't think that that's in, in a positive way. Yeah, I think they welcome that. I think they welcome that because they were getting ready to unload Zelensky. They were trying to use the polls to do that. But the Poles, while being a little bit angry with him for the farmer's market and such, didn't do their, their job properly. And so along comes Gaza, and now the distraction is sufficient so that they can get away with ignoring Ukraine. And Ukraine's having its own political problems right now. The head of the military in Ukraine is leading Zelensky in the polls for the election coming up. Um, here's what I think is happening, though, with regard to your specific question. Blinken, Sullivan, and Biden have had some second thoughts. Why has Biden had second thoughts? Because he is losing around 100,000 progressives every week. They are going away from him in terms of voting for him in 2024. They're disgusted with this situation. That's going to cost him the election. I don't care who the Republican candidate is. So he's got to really start thinking hard, and I think he is already, about how he regains some of these progressives. He's got to look like he's doing something, even if it's cosmetic. He's got to look like he's doing something. So I think Austin has delivered a signal, Secretary of Defense Austin. I think Blinken has delivered several signals. I think Bill Burns is delivering some heavy signals. It is unfortunate that the only true diplomat in the Washington administration is Bill Burns, who is malpositioned as director CIA. But you note they're using him for almost everything that's serious, like hostage uh, release. Um, so it, it, it's a mixed bag, but I think the domestic politics, thank God for domestic politics in this regard, are going to push Biden more and more to doing something, at least, that even if it's superficial in essence, 
that looks like he's got some concerns, some humanitarian concerns about what Bibi's doing. And he can't be in love with Bibi. Bibi has dismissed him so many times, dissed him so many times. Uh, I, I just I can't see how any American president would look at Bibi Netanyahu and not just feel like he was an anathema. Uh, he's such a disgusting character anyway. Uh, and his prolixity with English makes him even more disgusting because he can lie in English, just like Donald Trump. He can lie in English. Uh, I, I think they are doing some things. I just don't think they're doing enough, not in my view anyway. Right. <clears throat> now, Netanyahu is a guy who I, I trace some of this, and I think Ukraine in a way, and the war on terror, we can all, uh, up to the present day with what's happening in Gaza, <clears throat> I look back to the mid-1990s, and you had, you know, a few years after the Cold War ended, you had Russia and China, and they started making statements about how they didn't like the fact that it was a unipolar world, and they wanted to move toward the multipolar world. There were actually statements to this effect back then. And it seems like the response from the U.S. empire, we could call it that, and different factions of it was to really get ahead of this because around that time in or I think it was 96 you had that clean break document which I believe Netanyahu was involved with and maybe other people like Bernard Lewis and Richard Pearl I, I know that some of those hardliners were a part of it in both Israel and in the US and then you also had the CFR uh, they commissioned Brzezinski to write the grand chessboard and that's basically an anti-multipolar manifesto and then a couple of years later you have project for new american century a couple of years later after Brzezinski you have the project for a new American century saying essentially the same thing, global dominance, full spectrum dominance. So between like the sort of realists, like establishment realists like Brzezinski and the Likud people with the clean break and project for a new American century, their neoconservative, you know, craziness, uh, which is also intertwined with very pro-Israel people. There was just this decision after the Cold War that they would not, ex not allow the rise of a counter hegemonic block in the in in Eurasia essentially and the Middle East is you know a big part of that that story as well and now that it seems like everything has failed the 9-11 the wars the Arab Spring wars NATO expansion and now even on the Israeli side they're going for this final solution it seems like when they don't really have the wherewithal to do it I mean it just seems like all of these things have led to this moment and it's just failure all around and you were there for some of that you know in the you were close to these higher circles there during this time period um what are your reflections on how on this era and what is the influence of israel in guiding this because it seems to be a, a big part of the whole strategy in, in retrospect it kind of becomes even more i mean a lot of people said this at the time but what is what has been israel's role in in this and and where do you where how do how does the u.s deal with such a huge total failure across the board. <laughs> well, you've asked a number of questions and some of them are quite complex, but let me, yeah. let me try to, let, let me try to at least simplify one line of thought there. Israel has always had inordinate influence since 1948. With some presidents, they had less though. Ronald Reagan, for example, famous for selling AWACS and F-15s over stringent. Israeli objections to Saudi Arabia. H.W. Bush forcing them, and I was there when this happened, into Oslo, ultimately. That's why H.W. Bush lost in 1992. APAC Explain that. Why do you... 
Oh, yeah, why? APAC pitched its total support behind Bill Clinton. Money, influence, everything it could pour there. Go back and look at that. I was I analyzed that for Powell when he was chairman, and he said to me, HW's going to get a second term. And I said, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. He took me to task for weeks over that. And then when we got down to the elections and just short thereof, and HW pulled his secretary of state, Howard, or uh, Jim, Jim Baker, and made him his campaign manager, Powell got worried because <laughs> he knew Les Aspen was coming with Clinton, and Les Aspen had threatened to cut the military even further than we had under H.W. Bush. So APAC was largely responsible because they hated the fact that H.W. had for they, Bibi Netanyahu's branch, the fact that they had uh, not just assassinated Yitzhak Rabin, there's another story. Bibi incited the crowds that produced the assassin of Yitzhak Rabin, the architect of Oslo. Um, they made sure that H.W. Uh, lost and Clinton came in. Then Clinton was dedicated to paying the Jewish community back. Therefore, he did all manner of things that were influenced by Israel to include setting up a committee of the chairman of the board and other dignitaries from the military industrial complex to decide whether NATO should be expanded. <laughs> they came back to the president and said, this is a wonderful idea. Let's expand NATO. They could sell F-16s to Poland and other Warsaw Pact members. It's more complex than that, but it started with Bill Clinton and I was there. I saw it start with him. I saw what Aspen did. Then I saw what Perry did. I was taking Marine Corps War College seminars to speak with Bill Perry for hours in his office after he would just come back from Russia, for example, one time, and to speak to General Shalakastili in his office after he took over from Powell. Their whole intent was to do exactly what H.W. Bush had set in motion with Sherbert Nadze, with Gorbachev, and then with Yeltsin, and with others. And that was to bring Russia into Europe bring her into Europe and even make her eventually a member of the political alliance aspect of NATO, if not the military alliance. We were not sure the military alliance would really stay vibrant, but we figured the political alliance could maintain itself and the transatlantic link that went along with it for at least another 10 years, perhaps. All that went to hell with Bill Clinton and every president thereafter followed him. And we turned the entire process into exactly what you said. There'll be no hegemon. Now, those people were there with H.W. Bush, too. I remember when Paul Wolfowitz in the bowels of the Pentagon, there's a name you should recognize, wrote the national security strategy for Brent Scowcroft to give to H.W. Bush. Brent dutifully gave it to H.W. I'm quite confident Brent gave him some recommendations, too. And Bush took that document and wrote on it, send this back to the crazies in the basement of the Pentagon. That was H.W. Bush, the most experienced they, president we've had since Eisenhower. They so leaked he that, said right? No. Didn't they they leak that eventually and it became a little yep. sort of sort of scandal. Like if you're if you follow it very closely, you know the story, but yep. very few people do. But they yep. somebody leaked it and it because it was a it was really a it was madness. I mean it was like yeah. rule well, the world forever. In in two thousand and two. Powell hands me the national security strategy that Condi has just had written. I read it and I say to my boss, wow, this is the same thing H.W. sent back 10 years ago and said, you know, 
crazies in the basement. We put it in effect in 2002. Uh, I have to say this about my boss. His memory was a little bit slow there. He, he said, I don't, I've read it. I don't see anything wrong with it. I said, boss, it says in categorical terms, anyone who sticks their head up anywhere in the world, we are going to bomb the shit out of. <laughs> That's what it says. I said, I put it in that colorful language. And he said, oh, I better read it again. In any event, it became our strategy, our national strategy. And you're right. It is preposterous to think that we have the power, especially in this day and age when our power is dwindling in almost every aspect, and we have 33 plus trillion dollars in aggregate debt. People are not buying our treasury notes or are dumping our treasury notes because of that debt. It's a preposterous to think that we can stand at the top of the mountain and Okay, there's a there's a little country down there that wants to do something bad. We don't like it. Let's bash them. That's essentially what we're doing. Now, let me add hastily. Joe Biden is not an idiot. I mean, he he's a little old, but he's not an idiot. He was one of the few people during some of this build up to this kind of strategic outlook who said, "Can we do this?" Is, is this really what we should be doing in the world? So I know he's got some sense in that. And he's got some sense of the dire straits that the economy's in and other people are, you know, pointing out things too. Um, so I don't know how that's impacting things now. I don't know how his age is impacting that. But we desperately need a Congress and we desperately need a White House that understands the realities of power and begins to attenuate the abuse thereof that has been so omnipresent for the last 20 years, especially since 9-11. That kind of kicked it off. That let it go because these guys got what they wanted. They got their Pearl Harbor, as they said in the Project for a New American Century Clean Break Report. They needed a Pearl Harbor. They got it on 9-11. Didn't have you know, to be. <clears throat> and Powell told the president it didn't have to be that. You know? We could handle it differently, he said. We could handle it very differently. We don't need a massive war and all that. If you want to go to Afghanistan and pound a few heads and then leave six months later and say, do it again and we'll come back and pound you again, that's fine. But we do not need a protracted war, Mr. President. Well, look what we got. Right. And I, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the Israel lobby potentially being decisive in, in, in Bush's reelection, because after winning in the Gulf War and w beating the, I mean, he basically presided over a big military victory with the Gulf War and then also def winning the Cold War in the same presidential term. I mean, in basic terms, I know it's more complicated than that. And that but, and so that how does he him, lose? Well, that gave him the leverage to get the Madrid conference. That, that, because we had told the Israelis during the first, the first Gulf War, you will not enter this. If you enter this, we'll bash you. And we sent people to Israel to make sure they didn't enter it. We were afraid Saddam would shoot some scuds there, which he did. He did shoot a couple of missiles at Israel, and they would react. Well, Bush told him, you're in handcuffs. You don't do anything because we got 625,000 people in this coalition. We got Syrians, we got French, we got Saudis, we got Turks, we got Egyptians. You're not going to disrupt that. If you enter this war, you will disrupt that. We recognize the fact that I've been saying for so long that Israel's a strategic liability, not an asset. 
and 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 they they corresponded with what we wanted because they didn't have any choice. Well, that really made the right wing in Israel angry, and Oslo made them even more angry because their their goal has been all along to eradicate the Palestinians. Just eradicate. This them. is so obvious. I mean, it's so that's the only way that explains all of all of their, you know otherwise inexplicable decisions and the way they handle things is that they've just been biding their time for this. But yeah. perhaps that's why with the U.S. empire, you know, and U.S. hegemony really evaporating, that this is perhaps why they, upon, you know, getting a pretext, have decided to go for the maximalist response because perhaps they see the window closing for them to be able to act this way. And they're so fanatically devoted to this uh, it's like they're so steeped in blood. They just they're like, well, we can't go back now until we finish the job. I mean, it's it, it's an insane mentality that, that that must prevail over there. You could you, you could have a point. I, I won't argue that too much. Um, one thing I left out of that was how Netanyahu became so successful as finance minister and propelled himself into the prime ministership. He was buying oil from Mark Rich at discounted prices. Mark Rich was getting it, violating sanctions from Saddam Hussein, and he was pumping it into Israel. Well, the reason Netanyahu's economic record looked so good and made all the Jewish members of Israel absolutely not love him, but absolutely be content with him was because their economy was booming. More billionaires per capita than in the United States. And we have a god awful lot of them. So that criminal activity by Netanyahu and Mark Rich. Mark Rich went to jail, of course, and who pardoned him as an ignominious final act in the Oval Office? William Jefferson Clinton. Mark Rich was a crook, a, a huge crook, as bad as the guys who sell guns and such. He was passing this oil around the world and to partners and to friends like Bibi Netanyahu. Um, that it was dissipating somewhat because the syria problem had cut off that pipeline there's another story paul wolfowitz got tommy franks to bomb a particular oil head in syria without rumsfeld even knowing he'd given franks the order in order to prevent oil that was going to haifa from being stopped from going there you've got a situation now where for example the gaza entity was going to share 50-50, as I understand it, the gas and oil coming out of this very rich, possibly, field in the Mediterranean. Um, now Israel has abrogated the contract. They did that right after 7 October, and they're going in there solely to exploit that because they're losing that ability to get that discounted oil elsewhere, which will be a real blow to their economy. Ah, now we're beginning to see the whole tapestry here. Um, how we've been helping them, how they've been helping us, and how all of this has made a bloody-minded relationship that now is terminating in their final solution. And that's the proper phrase to use. It is their final solution for the situation in their portion of the Levant between the river and the sea. It is to eradicate the Palestinians. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it's... Can you do that in this day and age? I guess we're gonna we're gonna find out. But you know, question it's, I ask it's... myself every day. I mean, you know, yeah. people point to me and they say, "Oh, look what we did to the Native Americans. Look what we did to the slaves." Especially after the Nat Turner revolt, when you know the slaves actually got guns and killed some people down south. Uh, look what we did. 
that was 170 years ago. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. If you even if you even look at uh, what we did to the Japanese, for example, after World War during World War II, um, that's a long time ago. Don't we learn anything? Um, but there are people who use that argument. They'll say we ethnically cleansed our entire country. Why are we getting BB for doing it in his region? Yeah, they didn't have TikTok and back then uh we didn't have to look at it or we didn't see it in high definition right in front of us i mean this is it's really it's really horrific Uh, i want to ask you about something in particular because what you said about the bush hw's re-election is something i've thought about in the past and that possibility of that being something that could have led to his defeat you know that the israel lobby's involvement could have been a part of that has been registered in my mind before but do you think it's possible that at the end of Clinton's, you know, in the second term of Bill Clinton, I mean, given what we've seen with like um, Epstein and, and Maxwell, you know, and his sexual blackmail connections and the fact that he belongs to intelligence, but he seemed to be more of like, it seemed like his operation was kind of outsourced to Mossad, you know, like like maybe the CIA is having them handle the sexual, some sexual blackmail things because it's kind of sensitive and you'd rather have it really out of their wheelhouse in a way. I mean, do you think that it's possible that the Lewinsky thing and the, you know, Bill Clinton signing the Iraq Liberation Act, that like the, the that sort of uh, Zionist neocon nexus, you know, involved with clandestine world may have been involved in that whole affair? Because there was a lot of weird stuff going on at that time period. I mean, you had the FBI investigating people uh, that were some Congress people and finding out they were having affairs. You had all these wiretaps of different people, the Turkish lobby getting involved and it all traced back to different neoconservative actors. I mean, there was a lot going on there, uh, a conflict that we still don't really have a full understanding of in the last, in the second Clinton term. I mean, do you have any insight into that? Let me just answer that with this comprehensive answer. The most dangerous, insidious foreign agent operating on American soil is Israel. Normally through APAC, but they have other means as well. They are the most dangerous foreign agent operating on our soil. And the implications you just discussed are the surface of that. You can go through the last 50 years but particularly the last 20 to 25. And you can pick out, as you were doing there, examples of how this has worked or not worked over time. Most of the examples you would find have worked and they've worked in the favor of Israel. Now, is there a reason the United States tolerates that? Some strategists, some of whom I have respect for, like John Mearsheimer and others, would maintain very simply that the reason we tolerate this is because we think otherwise we'd have to be there in force doing what the Israelis are doing for us. Think about that for a minute. We think all these people are potential terrorists or potential uh, entities that are inimical to our interests in the region. So, we buy the pain and the agony of dealing with people like Netanyahu or before him, really, Arik Sharon. Remember when he led the invasion of Lebanon in 82 and we had to bail them out and had 242 Marines who died for it. The greatest death toll for the Marine Corps, single day death toll since Tarawa. 
Um, so this isn't something new, but we tolerate all that, according to these experts, because we'd have to do it if Israel weren't there. And so... <laughs> So it is even deeper than that. I mean, what I think is so I what you're saying is is a, is a sound argument about Israel as supposedly this aircraft carrier in the Middle East. But what I have focused a lot on the clandestine state and the, the way that covert operations and, and clandestine statecraft have influenced U.S. and global politics. And it, one tactic that the U.S. uses is to outsource a lot of these things to yes. satellites like, you know, the Saudis at different times or the, the, the Iranians, you know, Savak back in the day could do this or different little outfits all over the world. And I mean, Israel, because they're so fanatically devoted and they really they have a totally means justify the or ends justifies the means sort of mentality overall. I mean, is it are they doing even more than that that we don't even know about? Like if we outsource some of the darkest things that, that are that underpin this empire to the Israelis and is that is that a source of their domestic and international power as well? I mean, do we even know why they're as powerful as they are? Because <laughs> I don't I understand you, how they can get away with this in broad daylight. Even I'm well, shocked I think, by I think what's happening now. I think you've stumbled onto something that is a, always an adjunct, if you will, or a disadvantage in terms of this kind of strategy, using another state entity to do your dirty laundry. And that is that if that state becomes very powerful, in a specific area doing that and then begins to ignore you most of the time, you've got a problem because yes. you can't control it. It gets out of hand. You could look at Ukraine and say that to a certain extent. We sort of, you know, target of opportunity fell in there with Zelensky. I was managing the Ukraine account for Powell in 2002 and 2003. And I went in one day and I said to him, this is a kleptocracy. This is this is not even anywhere close to a Jeffersonian or even a democracy. This is a kleptocracy. Yulia Tymoshenko is as, cro as crooked as the guy she replaced. And he would say, well, you know, they are a country of a lot of people. And blah, 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 blah. I, mean, I would say, we don't want anything to do with this country. Imagine my surprise later when I figure, oh, they're talking again, because in 92 they were talking about this different way though they were talking about it as europe whole and free everybody we forget russia's a part of europe ukraine's a part of europe so we were talking about it in a very positive sense hw bush was um and so was gorbachev gorbachev thought that was a you know a terrific idea although he was very suspicious of us he was powell would tell me about some of his suspicions sometimes he would talk, sometimes he would talk to Powell more straightforwardly than he would with the president. Um, so that was a different sort of looking at Ukraine then. N now the look at Ukraine was for NATO. And that all came about, that transition in thought came about with Clinton. Um, uh, Georgia, Georgia, my president goes to Georgia in 2002, I think it was, and from the public square announces that Georgia will be a member of NATO with Sakashvili right there beside him, who incidentally, I think now is the mayor of Odessa. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Georgians get around. <laughs> After all, Stalin was from Georgia. Uh, it's, it's a far cry from what was anticipated at the end of the Cold War. Uh, George H.W. Bush made a very clarifying statement one day when he said, we will not pump our chests we will not.
Everyone understand that? That was the National Security Council. Everyone understand we will not thump our chest. This is not a moment to go out and stand on the mountaintop and say, we won the Cold War. Ha, ha, ha. We're going to be decent about this. Uh, Prudence was his middle name. Prudence and pragmatism were were his middle name. Um, We haven't had that since. No, no, we don't. We do not have the statesmanship at the top of the of the U.S., and that is the uh, terrible, terrible crisis of the moment that makes it impossible for us to resolve other crises. Um, I did keep you longer than we had uh, uh, talked about earlier, so I want to thank you so much, Professor, for talking about uh, all of these issues with me, and I hope that you can come back on soon, and uh, I'm really glad that you're out there because we really all appreciate from your uh, insight and, and, and such. Thank you. I appreciate those kind remarks. <laughs>
uh, the policy is like at the end of the day insane. Um, But but who knows? Uh, Him talking about the Israel lobby is always interesting. It's always interesting to hear people who have had experience in the political system talk about the influence of the lobby. I mean, I'm at IU right now, and uh, a few years back, they renamed the International Studies School, the Hamilton Luger School. Hamilton, of course, being Lee Hamilton, who is, uh, you know, one of the major stooges of American empire. But even he they was had like, a whole, he had a whole mythology around him. My mom worked for an Indiana congressman, and so and my mom is a very nice person, but isn't really a, somebody who thinks about deep politics. And when I was growing up, she would always say, "Oh, Lee Hamilton is a great statesman." And I just and I know this wasn't this was something that she had heard and then just transmitted. So there's a mythology around Luger and Hamilton, when both of them are really foreign policy ghouls, to be sure. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, like, even Lee Hamilton, like, let it slip, uh, I don't know, like, in an interview in the 90s, he was talking about how the Israel lobby is one of the single most powerful lobbies in America, more powerful than oil, more powerful than, uh, uh, like, the Did he said He said that? He said they're more powerful than oil? Uh, I believe so, yeah. I think this was a quote, I think it was in uh, the Mearsheimer Walt uh, Israel lobby book. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, when people in power let let it slip like give a an inside view it's always interesting and even wilkerson he said that uh the tip of the iceberg of what you were talking about with uh you know the epstein blackmail network and uh, the deep politics surrounding the uh, the clintons and all that stuff like he said that that was just like the surface level like it's only scratching the surface and he's like well yeah israel's the most dangerous foreign actor operating on american soil and uh, it, it tracks with everything that we've been learning about uh, you know, collectively been learning about the Israel lobby, its influences, uh, even even just what we're experiencing on a daily basis. Like the fact that, uh, you know, we could get that that Alan Dershowitz could get Norman Finkelstein denied tenure uh, or the fact that uh, even if you're on a university campus today, you're at risk of losing your job uh, if you speak out in support of Palestine, even at my university right now. Uh, they're they're investigating a professor uh, for scheduling an event, uh, a Palestine-related event. Uh, They're saying he falsified paperwork by calling the event academic. Like, it's all so stupid, but uh, yeah, it's dumb. But um, they, the fact that they're able to wield this power, the fact that the the pressures of every institution, major institution in America, uh, has to deal with this in some way and accommodate it in some way. I mean, it tracks with it being a significant force in American foreign policy, I mean, even domestic policy. Like states are passing laws that uh, th- that require that companies they do contracts with uh, promise not to boycott Israel. Like state employees, like in Texas, they have to take oaths promising not to boycott Israel. Like what? I think they go, they're no, going, they nothing, go a no little too far. I yeah. think they go, they've gone, I think that that is the situation for the U.S. in general in, in the world, and that is the situation for Israel now and in U.S. domestic politics and in its own situation. They have, they go, they had too much power and they use, they, they use it stupidly and they're going to run into the limits of, uh, of stupidly exercised power, I think. Uh, and we're already, I think that we may be starting to see it, although I don't know how it's going to go down. It's it, it's like a, it's like somebody who wins the lottery when they don't have that much wherewithal, and then all of a sudden they have that much money. It's like too much power 
that's been the story of Israel and the story of the U.S. since the end of World War II. Like we created a money uh, a situation where money uh, called the tune, and a lot of well-funded, very dedicated people, uh, dedicated designism, put everything into making sure that this was a viable project and it has the enormous significance to them, which makes them different than other lobbies, which are really just business. Like the, the Zionist lobby in the United States is something different from these other lobbies and uh it's it has a dedicated a dedicated and totally unscrupulous intelligence service as well uh as its servant it is uh kind of horrifying yeah i mean that that leaked i think i talked about it on the podcast before but that leaked al jazeera documentary uh the lobby uh from 2018 the first thing that uh, the first episode of it was them talking about the influence of the lobby on college campuses. They sent a guy and he was undercover working with like a group that worked with college campuses to advance, you know, the lobby's goals. What they found was that the these lobby groups, these campus lobby groups, they interface with organizations that are directly like directly related to the like the Israeli intelligence, like the Office of Strategic Affairs. Like they they consider this an important beachhead in their ideological war uh, against Americans and the takeover of like American political discourse. And, and it, and it works. I mean, it's an interesting documentary. Uh, if you, if you see it in action, but they, yeah, it got, did it get, it was, they got suppressed, but then somehow leaked. Is that how, is yeah. that how it happened? Yeah. Al, Al Jazeera, you know, owned by the, the, the government the of Tari Royal family. Yeah. And uh, like they, you know, they have a, a complicated relationship with Israel and like, you know, they're primarily the funders of Hamas and they've like uh, entered to negotiations, but you know, they still react to the various pressures that they have. And there was enough pressure on them, Al Jazeera English to suppress this documentary, but the, the electronic intifada, they got a copy. I'm not certain how, but uh, they posted on their website. So if people want to go watch that documentary, it's on electronic intifada and it's called the lobby. Uh, it's very good. But it's just astounding the the power of this this foreign country over uh, over domestic politics. I mean, Chomsky says, and I'm, like I said, I'm rereading Faithful Tri Triangle, which is an excellent book. It's like deja vu, the same justifications of the, the same situations uh, being reprised again. But it, the way he puts it is that uh, it's not that they don't actually believe that there's a serious risk of uh, support for Israel being undermined like tomorrow. It's like every little bit is an opportunity for that to spread. Every little bit of anti-Israel sentiment or criticism of Israel is a chance for that to spread. And so the mentality becomes completely totalitarian. Like any, any if, if they lift their heads up, any professor saying, saying something mildly critical, well, they wanna put pressure on that to make sure that anyone who does that understands that there is a severe cost to doing that and they've managed to change the political economy of the entire country yeah i mean in the the result is that they empower the worst elements to do what they do and then they generate opposition dialectically because they're foolishly pursuing short-sighted uh kind of maniacal policies uh, i mean this the eliminationist version of israel that that didn't really need to be the, it, they could have not settled the West Bank and just uh, they didn't have to you know, keep shrinking Gaza. They 
had a, n enough land to be viable there, considering they had support of the United States and so on. There's really no uh, reason for them to think that this is essential for them. Uh, they could have made peace, tried to let and try to let bygones be bygones and so on. But so many times, not done this. Um, they have not done this, and it's this is i don't know what i don't understand now is how well i say i don't i won't say i totally don't understand it but it is very dismaying that they are pursuing what they're pursuing now in gaza which does not seem to be a military operation people are saying oh you're just killing too many civilians you're this isn't the way to go after hamas you'll create more hamas and then like they are aware that they are not eliminating hamas it just the it only makes sense as a land grab and yet that's that conversation is not being had they're not having the conversation of should israel be allowed to, to steal more land from palestinians that seems to be what they're that seems to be the only way to understand what they're doing now and we're not even having that conversation i mean this is a way instead we're having a debate over we're arguing over whether anti-zionism is anti-semitism which is a joke of an argument it's like saying is a cat a dog i mean yeah it's a, this it's this is it's amazing to have this kind of power and get people to accept these kind of absurdities. And the House just passed a resolution designating anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. Like they just, they just, they just did that shit. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, this this whole idea that uh, you know this is a war against Hamas, uh, it, it's a problem with the general framing of this war, even among like critics of the war. And part of this is a misunderstanding, but the other part is just like rhetorical necessity in this climate, this political climate that we're in. But the start starting point for every discussion, uh, especially uh, among, like, you know, the liberal audiences, is that, well, yes, Hamas is awful and should be destroyed, but the cost might be too high here. Uh, consider doing something else or easing up a bit. Uh, you know, the line, Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinians, or uh, just like Netanyahu doesn't represent all uh, Israelis. It's it's a sort of way of doing most of Israel's work for them. Uh, it's a way of accepting Israel's frame that Hamas is a you know a genocidal anti uh, anti Jewish on principle organization uh, who just wants to attack Israel. Well, you know if that's true, if uh, Hamas is like you know Al Qaeda or ISIS, well then the only question is how do we deal with that? And then reasonable people can disagree about how many civilians is acceptable to kill towards that end. But that's based on a completely false premise because that's not what Hamas is. Uh, Hamas is, you know, it's an Islamist organization, but they're more moderate than Israel. Like they've accepted a two-state solution years ago, like decades ago. They've said that, you know, e even when they were doing suicide bombings, they were explicit that they're only doing it to try and liberate the occupation after 1967. They weren't trying to destroy the state of Israel. They weren't trying to, uh, you know, eliminate Jews from the Middle East. Uh, but that's been the propaganda for the last, you know, 20 years. And, you know, Hamas has repeatedly offered Israel uh, and indicated to Israel that they're willing to go to the table on a serious two-state solution. Uh, but uh, Israel has been the more extreme party in completely rejecting that. Uh, and so... Or they make offers that are so, you know, absurd that... Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what happened no after the uh, Hamas's election. Uh, Hamas uh, was elected in 2006 and part of the the deal uh, with the PA was uh, uh, they were going to accept Israel uh, at the 67 borders 
uh, they were willing to, uh, you know, share governing responsibilities with other Palestinian factions, and, and they were willing to, uh, if not directly negotiate with Israel, negotiate through the PA, which is, you know, through the PLO, uh, with Israel. They were, they were announcing their willingness to do that, but Israel, they said, no, you have to recognize previous agreements, in, including Oslo, which Israel was violating at the time, so it's really one-sided. And they also had to recognize Israel's right to exist, um, which accepting Israel and its existence and not fighting that is very different than recognizing the legitimacy of Israel and saying that they have a right to be there. Uh, because like, it, it's the difference between uh, saying that America is here and saying that America should be here. Like America is here and no one uh, denies that. And even Hamas leaders were at the time saying, look, Israel's here. We will accept 67 borders, and by definition, that means there will be some state beyond those borders, but I'm not going to legitimize it with my uh, you know, support. I'm not going to say that is right to be there. That's a moderate position, and that's something you could go forward with in any serious peace settlement, but Israel refused that. They said that they're not, uh, they don't recognize Israel, and they don't like Oslo, which we're violating. Therefore, we can blockade Gaza. And then the blockade caused a lot of internal fighting, and which led to the uh, uh, plan supported Fatah coup, which led to Hamas taking over the Strip. And even after they took over the Strip, I mean, uh, they weren't firing rockets at Israel until Israel started invading Gaza, uh, like uh, fighting against other Palestinian militants. So this whole idea that Hamas is some irreconcilable organization uh, that uh, you know needs to go is false no, no, uh, a blockade uh, is an act of war by the way yeah, so it's an act there's of war. no it, there's no they can't they're they're uh, they're waging war against Hamas by having a blockade against, yeah. against gaza so exactly and so that's I why mean, you talk about a ceasefire i mean like they say that, oh there was a ceasefire before october 7th well i mean only in the narrowest sense that they agreed not to fire rockets and israel agreed not to like drop bombs but the fact is that israel's structural violence which is the major major uh, grievance of the people of Gaza against Israel. I mean, a, blo a blockade isn't structural violence. A blockade is an act of war. I mean, that is, that's why President Kennedy in 1961, when they put the blockade around Cuba, they didn't say blockade, they called it a quarantine. But the, real, but the reason they use the euphemism is because it is understood that a blockade is an act of war. Yeah. So they were, uh, they were already waging war on Gaza. I mean, the blockade itself is, is an act of war. And they continue war. to do so. And every if the blockade is in place, then they are at war with Gaza, and then yeah. what do you say? Then, then at that point, anything coming out of Gaza is, uh, you know, it, it, there's a parties at war. I mean, they can't if they're put, having a blockade, they're waging war on Gaza, and they can't say that Gaza is not, or that the people in Pal the Palestinians in Gaza are not. Uh, you know, I mean, it's absurd the way it's discussed. This isn't even pointed. This is very rarely pointed out that they are already at war with Gaza. They're waging war on Gaza just by virtue of the fact that it's blockaded. Yeah. And like, it, it just underscores just how much Hamas has been willing to accept, like been willing to accommodate Israel. Because every ceasefire agreement uh, since Gaza took over the Strip has included obligations for Israel to lessen uh, and uh, reduce the extremity of the blockade uh and israel they violate this every single time they increase the blockade they uh keep uh you know 
regulations of the how far Gazans can go out and fish. Uh, they keep all this control without loosening it in any reasonable way. And so when Hamas responds to that uh, in any way, uh, that's considered a violation of the ceasefire. Well, that's totally false. This this whole framing of the issue was hard. But if you ex- but when you talk about like, well, Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinian people. We can attack Hamas without attacking the civilians. You're doing Israel's work for them. They know that Americans are predisposed to, you know, even if they're, they're more reasonable minded, they're predisposed to accept a certain number of civilian deaths. Like the civilian casualty files, you know, people don't even know about that. It was New York Times reported them like last year. Uh, and they, they showed like how the Pentagon doesn't care about any of that. But, you know, Americans, if they're willing to say, if they're being told like this is for some good cause, which is sort of how the New York Times framed it. Well, then again, like I said, reasonable people can disagree about how many thousands of civilians should die for that cause. And that's what we're debating right now. Uh, how many thousands is too many thousands? Is it 20,000? Is that too much? No. Okay. Well, maybe it'll be uh, 15,000 or 50,000. It, it, it's just a horrific way to talk about this issue. And it gives them the high ground. Yeah. I mean, this is, it, it's, there doesn't seem to be any pressure coming from the U.S. to be able to deal with this. It somehow is going to have to play itself out in a different way rather than expecting any statesmanship. I mean, if the Congress just passes that absurd, like it's a logical absurdity of anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism. It's, it's as though you've taken this the most, the wealthiest, most technologically advanced country in the world, and it's, you know, 400 plus uh, elected representatives that you know the elite of the elite somehow in theory and it, you've gotten them all to agree that two plus two equals five yeah uh, it, it's a not it's nonsensical and it's absurd and they're all in agreement for it this is a kind of totalitarian idiocy that uh, can only be explained by reference to a, a, a political despotism that makes people at, believe absurd things and and recite them as though they are uh, cultists it's this is not going to look good in the future if there is any future. Yeah. But I, I want to take go. I want to take a moment, or I want to sh- shift gears here and go talk about another uh, I- issue where the U.S. empire is not doing very well. And I wanted to ask Larry more about this, but then my computer, as I said, it got really weird, so we we cut it short. But it was good because it was about as long as we were supposed to go anyway. But I got it was great talking to Larry about this, so it was going to go longer. But I want to talk about Ukraine. And in particular, I have a new article coming out. It might be out by the time this is published uh, over at the Beacon, and it's on um, the, the debacle in Ukraine. And I talk about you, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and how they have been this, they represent the corporate capture of U.S. foreign policy uh, from the World War II era uh, up to the present day. And you can still see this guy, the president, uh, flacking for U.S. empire here. Uh, and so I'm going to have some articles and that were written kind of far apart. The first one that have some good quotes, though, the first one comes from uh, last year. And it's was this was um, when there was still some delusion about the um, still some delusion about the prospects for the counteroffensive taking off. But he says the conventional wisdom was that Russia was going to do really well, really quickly, might replace the government that militarily the Ukrainians weren't much of a match. But, oh, the, the conventional wisdom was incorrect. The Ukrainians, after the Russian invasion, uh, the resistance wasn't just valiant, but it was effective. And uh, the U.S. and NATO rallied behind it uh, and that they'd been training them and they put these sanctions in place. But then, as a result of this, it, 
the Russians uh, define their ambitions more modestly, move their troops to the east and the south, and they've been in that phase for a while. Well, this is just the, the magic alternate reality of these, these people. I mean, what we know now is that Russia invaded with a very, a very small force, a force that couldn't possibly have taken Kiev and occupied or occupied the country in any way. It, 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 they were, and I pointed this out at the time that it didn't seem that that force ever could have taken Kiev, that like it was really some kind of a feint, really. Uh, and that just seems to be, and that should have been recognized at the time. So he's already, it's already, he's already misleading this readership with this. And what is the consequence of that? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. Now, he's saying, uh, last few days, there's a, a little shift, which is that, <laughs> which is that after the sense had been that Ukraine was doing extremely well, I would say over the last week, there seems to be a sense that Russia has adapted to some extent, has adopted certain lessons, concentrating its forces much better, um, grinding out certain progress slowly, but on the ground. We've entered a new phase where what's going on is, again, I don't want to use the word stalemate because that seems to predict too much. But again, very concentrated battles in the south and east. Russia controls things pretty much in the maritime areas, and that's the backdrop. Okay, so he's already, he's saying it's a stalemate when really it wasn't even a stalemate back then. They weren't, I, I don't believe, the casualties were always lopsided and Russia could could absorb more of them than Ukraine could. It was always, it became clear that it was going to be an issue of Ukraine's going to run out of men. Yeah. War of attrition. Yeah. And so these people are debating whether, uh, you know, what to do about it. And it's, this is a round table at the CFR. So one of the guys, Stephen Hadley, I think he's a former national security uh, official. And then now he's, he's just here, CFR flag, because it's a revolving door between these two institutions. Um, Hadley says... That's right. But, uh, you know, Russia has resumed an invasion that began in 2014. And one of the questions uh, I would raise is I don't think Putin has revised his objectives. His objectives are to incorporate Ukraine. And that remains. He shifted his tactics and they seem to be working better for him than the one before. And that's worrying. Well, again, we know now that they were that they wanted to end this war. Uh, but, you know, they wanted to end this war uh, very early on. They almost did. So this guy's this isn't honest. Uh, somebody else says, yeah, I would agree with that, of course, because <laughs> this is all, you know, group think here. Um, it's changed in several respects, though. Russia now has lines of communication through Donbass, concentrated in one area. The terrain has shifted. Russia is now more on defense than offense, at least in some parts uh, of Donbass. That puts more burden on Ukraine forces. OK, so there's at least an, a, a sense that like, OK, well, Russia actually has this territory that it has pretty much control over. And now Ukraine has to do the tougher work of trying to take it back. At least that's paying homage to reality in some way. This other person, Polyakova, uh, I'm going to agree and disagree. Um, <laughs> the goal is still to undermine and destroy Ukraine's ability as an, as an independent nation that can develop democratically and integrate into Euro-Atlantic institutions. That's not, this is, they're lying about the goal. The goal is not, the goal they're, is they're just to making make... this up. Like they're literally just making this up themselves. I mean, if, if they had paid attention to well, even before the war, Putin's public statements, it has nothing to do with we want to control Ukraine. It has nothing to do with uh, we we don't want Ukraine to be demo democratic. All of that, that just came from Western commentators uh, looking into their own crystal balls and not looking at Russia. They're and also omitting and omitting the fact that their democracy was overthrown by the U.S. in 2014, which makes yeah. this all the more infuriating. And omitting the obvious fact that a war... Uh, would destroy Ukraine's democracy 
faster than, uh, you know, even if Russia got everything it wanted and like Ukraine didn't join NATO and, uh, you know, the Donbass region and Crimea, uh, you know, was uh, shifted out of Ukraine's control. Ukraine's democracy would today be in a way better state than it is right now. Uh, I mean, are they're ready? When was this? Was this uh, like last week or this this earlier early part? It, this part of it that I, the ones that I've read, as I recall here, because there's two different articles, but they're some of the same people. Like Hass is the, is one of the, is the people, a person in both of them, and he's the president, Richard Hass. So this one is from about a, a more than a year ago. The, the the one where they have this round table of people talking. So this is when they were still putting forward the brave face of like things are going well. Okay, so this isn't this isn't before it became completely untenable with uh, No, but he has the, the he has we coming up there's the, it gets back to that to the newer era and you'll see how he's changing his tune and it's just funny or it's <laughs> sick depending on how you want to think of it. All right, but well let's here, see. It. This this second part here from her I think is just it it, it shows this uh made up world. I mean, they're they're not part of the reality based community. Uh, they're they're part of the imperial flacking community, um, and this says, you know, the tactics have shifted because of the challenges Russia faced. Okay, this part this follows a long pattern of how we've seen Russia's military operations take shape over periods of time where they kind of muck it up initially because they're not that good in a lot of ways, but then they adapt and they learn and they implement these adaptations over time. They're still taking huge losses despite that, but I do agree they have adapted. So again. They, did they muck it up initially? I mean, the early invasion, perhaps they did take more losses because with this small, basically expeditionary force, they went, they went too far into Ukraine and, and, and got, took some losses there. I mean, there were reports of the Russians taking more losses than people would have expected when they invaded. But again, I think that this is a fundamental and deliberate misunderstanding uh, of, of what Russia was trying to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, even even if this was like in the middle of summer last year, even if this was, was, yeah, that's about. I believe that's about what it was. Well, we we already had the information about uh, uh, Boris Johnson's trip to uh, cancel peace negotiations. They Uh, won't acknowledge that, though. Yeah, of of course not. Yeah, I mean, we already have public information about like the U.S. uh, saying that they don't want peace negotiations. Uh, Later, I mean, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of uh, what you have next year. Uh, but later, I mean, we had Putin even produced a signed draft document of a of a a pathway to a treaty, and that yeah. was recently confirmed by uh, uh, one of the uh, chief negotiators. Officials. Yeah, yeah, one of the chief negotiators. No, this is it's it's uh, it's well known now. You can't really argue against it. I don't think. Yeah. So Unless yeah, that, that will come up. <laughs> that I have a picture of that in the article. Has here at the end says, "What should be our definition of success?" This is. This is a good question. This is the one that might come back to haunt you uh, if people are paying attention years from now. I can think of a few. I can think of a return to the status quo of 1991, if you will, when Ukraine first became a sovereign independent entity. I can think of, which basically brings you up to early 2014. I could think of us getting back to where uh, we were three and a half months ago, essentially to the 2014, post-2014 status quo that dominated for eight years. Well, here, this is just imperial. (laughs) He's in the imperial copium den. And he's really been hitting the pipe very hard, and now he's just he's just saying things uh, that, that people who are not as high as him will not understand. Yeah, like this is gibberish. <laughs> like, I I could think of getting us back to essentially no no 2014 uh, or essentially to 2014 post 2014, so no invasion. So he wants to get back to this boiling civil war. 
uh, you know, that killed, you know, a lot of people, like 14,000 people uh, in the Civil War. It's not, not a small thing. And of course, it always risks uh, spiraling out of control. And throughout that whole time, the U.S., uh, they decided not to push for a peaceful settlement. They wanted the war to continue and uh, keep. It's again, not that they fighting. decided. They did. It wasn't just that they decided to push for not allowing a peaceful settlement. Not even a push yeah. to dictate. No. And uh, well, I, I'm talking about the, uh, the 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 Minsk Accords. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and they throughout that whole period, like there were there was a solution on the table, but then you had that Rand study in 2019 saying that a great way. A great way that they could antagonize Russia would be to increase support uh, for uh, the Ukraine side in the civil war, which would increase Russia's involvement, which would then might push them to invade. That was from yeah. the RAND study. And then, well, look what happened. Yeah. Now we know about these peace talks. And as you were saying, there's just more and more evidence of this. Our guy, Ivan Kachanovsky, who's a Canadian professor, very, you know, straight-laced academic, um, and he did good stuff on the Maidan massacre and how it came okay. from the opposition side, which has been vindicated now. Um, but here he's saying this admission by Arestovich, ex-advisor of Zelensky and negotiating group member, the Russian side still insisted on peace initiatives, and the Istanbul peace initiatives were very good, an intermediary document now 200 to 300,000 would be alive probably and half of Ukraine would not be destroyed in mind. They agreed to political discussions on Crimea. We made concessions, but the amount of their concessions was greater. This will never happen again. Uh, it won't. They will push more and more. So he's saying that the Russians were not doing what Haas said. Their goal was not to take over all of Ukraine. Their goal was just to have a negotiated settlement to this. And that would have that would have meant returning to the status to the minsk status quo basically like it was russia did not want this war russia attempted to uh have its security concerns addressed in uh, the december before right a couple months before the invasion began so this they just refuse to report honestly on the position of the russians the motives of the russians and the history of what actually happened it's it's this is remarkable this is not the reality-based community this is the foreign policy blob that makes up its own reality and thinks that because they're the history's most powerful actors, they just make their reality and all the nerds are just going to study what they do. And that's how things will play out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and this again is the latest in a series of similar revelations. I mean, we had, uh, you know, Naftali Bennett himself, uh, the Israeli uh, former prime minister come out and say that, yes, this is, uh, this is what happened. There was a peace deal in the U S uh, helped scrap it. We had the uh, the Ukrainska Pravda report about Boris Johnson coming. Uh, we also had uh, Putin himself come out with this draft document to talk about how there was a peace deal, uh, or or at least a pathway to peace available. Uh, and there were there were others too. I mean, there were diplomats talking about uh, uh, in Istanbul talking about how yeah the U.S. side seems completely committed to keeping this war going. And, but even if you didn't have all of that, again. It, just look at the facts. Like, do you think that Russia planned on conquering all of Ukraine with a hundred thousand soldiers? Uh, like, they that, that's not possible. Like, it's it's it doesn't, yeah. I don't even know how to respond to that. Uh, but again, going back to what it's like on a university campus. Well, I was here. They had this big uh, wall in the International Studies Building, the Hamilton Luger, 
they had this big wall that said that uh, uh, it, it was like charting Russia's long-standing plans for genocide against Ukraine. And it, it just had like just factual inaccuracies on it. Um, but the one thing that they cited for Russia's genocidal intentions now to like capture and destroy all Ukraine, it was, you know, Putin's, uh, you know, the speech, the big speech that he gave uh, right uh, a few weeks before the invasion where he says that true Ukra- true sovereignty is Ukraine and Ukraine is only possible through partnership with Russia. Well, you know, they just twisted that and said that, well, of course he wants to uh, capture Ukraine. But, you know, they omit the parts where he says that, uh, like, that he respects Ukrainian sovereignty and that uh, they want a partnership between the two countries. And they, they omit so much of that. And then the other statement that they use that's been floating around American media was just from a, a Russian TV commentator who said, like, some outlandish, insane uh, kill them all rhetoric about Ukraine. And their argument was that since he was a, a Russian television broadcaster, and the state doesn't allow anything on television that they don't agree with 100%, then therefore that what he said represents the thoughts of Vladimir Putin. They live on fantasy planets. Like, this is the extent of their logical reasoning capabilities. Uh, But, you know, they're the people who are running the world. And so we're just in it, I guess. (laughs) Yes. And this is... uh... This is a big problem for us. And I, I, as bizarre as it is, I think that the situation in Ukraine is a debacle. Like, I mean, even the Iraq war isn't as big a debacle yeah. as this. Yeah. In, I mean, it, it is in terms of the, it costs more U.S. lives and pr- was more expensive in the long run and probably killed more people, although it's getting close. Um but they, I mean, I heard, I think I heard Jeff Sachs say 500,000. You hear the Colonel McGregor guy saying uh, 400,000. This guy himself, this Ukrainian, said 200 to 300,000. So I'm guessing probably 400 to 500,000. And the average age of the Ukrainian soldier now, Time Magazine reported, is 43 years old. Yeah. That means, what is that? I mean, that means there must be very few, there must be a lot, not that many people in their 20s because. Yeah. I mean, so every person in their 20s, there. they have to be canceled out by someone in their 60s, basically, yeah. to, to get at that average age. That age. Like, half the army is just, uh, uh, like, your dad <laughs> like or your I granddad. Mean, I, it, it is, I don't know how they're going to avoid, uncon- if, if Russia wants them to surrender unconditionally, they can get that. They can have, they can do whatever they want militarily. And the only reason that they um, are, are have not, done more is because they didn't want to they didn't want to they could flatten kiev they yeah. could militarily this is such a mismatch that they could destroy it all and that should have been clear from the beginning i it's this is uh i mean maybe this was the the, the thought was that well if russia goes in and then they'll go in like us and we'll just destroy everything yeah. and that'll be really bad for them they couldn't Russia has absorbed many casualties and lost lives because it chose not to go scorched earth on ukraine at some point that may be that may register with the ukrainian people although i don't i think there's going to be a lot of bitterness but at some point they have to realize that the u.s is the one that really screwed them and gave them really nothing real whereas russia invaded and even then took care not to create massive numbers of civilian deaths i mean my understanding is that in gaza there have been more civilian deaths in like a month than in the entirety of the of the war since russia entered in 
you know, February a couple of years yeah, ago. No, that, that's completely true. I mean, and Israel, they they mobilized around the same number of troops that Russia mobilized to invade Ukraine. Like, and that's just to attack Gaza. And uh, the number of bombs, quite small. Yeah, which is it's quite small. It's and like the number county. of civilians killed. Uh, yeah, like the, the rate of civilians being killed is extreme. It's worse than Ukraine. Like, it's a worse attack than the attack on Ukraine. Uh, but it's just, it, it, it's really indescribable. I mean, when you think about the 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 rhetoric and the image of Russia that was portrayed in Western press when Russia was doing their attack on uh, uh, on Ukraine, when that was just getting started, there were reports in American media about U.S. officials being like confused and baffled that Russia isn't doing like a shock and awe Iraq type thing and just blowing up Kiev. Like the U.S. would have loved that. That would have been great for American propaganda, but they didn't do that. Uh, they, I mean, they just lied about it. They said that they that Russia was just, uh, you know, doing a campaign of genocide. Uh, but when uh, when Israel's doing it here in Gaza, uh, you know, those same people uh, nowhere to be seen. Uh, or yeah. they'll, they'll do everything they can to justify it. That's just, I mean, the, the propaganda pay. system we live in is overwhelming. I mean, I, I keep coming back to that because, it, again, it, it affects you every You see it every day. Every news report, every every uh, every time they refuse to call Palestinians under 18 children, every time they'll say Hamas run Ministry of Health, they know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. These aren't stupid people. Like, they know the effect of their words. They know the effect of their framing. And they know the credibility of the Israelis is almost zero, but they, they do it anyway. So this you know, extends to our media system, our political system, and uh, our everything. It's just totalizing. It's totalitarian. Yeah. I mean, it goes beyond the obvious institutions which would be engaged in disseminate, producing and disseminating propaganda. And it filters into the rest of society, civil society and sense-making institutions in general in that people who are not propagandists and may not even want to have anything to do with the issue end up becoming propagandists or functionally are acting as propagandists because they understand that if they actually tell the truth about things, it will have uh, consequences that are very real for them. And so in order to avoid incurring those consequences, they become they de they deputize themselves as propagandists basically they don't want to confront this i mean even when i was a high school teacher i largely avoided the issue of israel because i'd seen uh lunacy uh it was at a private school and i saw the adl come in and uh really scold an administration and uh because uh some very aggressively racist Zionist students had uh, tried to say that the, the, the school was um, that Muslim students were able to get away with things that Jewish students weren't because uh, at some point they said you can't wear an IDF shirt because this is like a Quaker school so we don't have any military things here and then they they, they did this ridiculous like agitprop yeah. thing and then eventually it ends up like it gets written up in a local a little local paper um, and the, the thing about it was the school was not, it was a Quaker school, but it was functionally like a Jewish Quaker school. Like the majority of the yeah. student body, um, uh, was, was Jewish. But it was only and, these uh, Zionists who were, uh, like these hyper Zionists who were like trying to make a stink and saying, right. that they're, 
and then you end up with the ADL coming in and so on. And so I just thought like, man, if they, if they do that here at this little institution where it doesn't even like, it's a small, it's a, a private Quaker school, you know, in, in Philadelphia, who cares? But if they would do that for this, this is just like a mindset that is fanatical. And, uh, it's it, you see it with the control of Congress and so on. Um, I mean, I think that we probably don't know the half of it, and that's something yeah. that more people are realizing. And uh, so, uh, what what do you do except for try to understand it better and spread the word about it? I think it's gonna. I think it's burning itself out in a way with its actions now, uh, just like as aggressive empires do. I mean, it's an imperialist project. And they managed to intertwine themselves with the U.S. And that is where that's brought us to this. They've enabled us and we've enabled them to do, I'll say we, the Americans. And uh, we've been, we fed each other's worst impulses. And, and now we're, this, these twin calamities in Ukraine and Gaza are, the world must be just looking at this in horror. Yeah. And right now, uh, I mean, if you look at what what's going on in Ukraine right now, the Russians are actually mounting a, you know, pretty substantial counteroffensive uh, around uh, different areas in there. You haven't seen a lick of this in the Western press. Like I, I haven't seen the like the name of the town Avdivka in, in like Western press except for like in passing. But it's a major city, like it's a major junction, much like uh, Bakhmut, which received extensive coverage back when uh, things were more optimistic over here in America. But it looks like uh, Avdivka is about to be, you know, overran and and in the next you know, a couple weeks in the next few weeks, a uh, month or so. Uh, and that's a, a major turning point. I mean, and there are all sorts of areas along the Ukrainian uh, or along the Eastern Ukrainian front that are, you know, buckling under some sort of pressure. And there are even people who uh, are, are suggesting that right now in the, uh, uh, like the Western camp, I can't remember who exactly it was. It might've been Stoltenberg. Uh, or it might have been someone else, but they said, uh, prepare for some bad news out of Ukraine. Uh, do you remember who said that? Uh, but no, that, but uh, it's... Uh, that I, I want to sounds... say it was Stoltenberg, but he, like, it was like last week, he said, uh, prepare for some bad news out of Ukraine uh, like soon. Uh, like, just steal yourselves. <laughs> uh, I was like, we, we still want to support democracy and stuff, uh, but there's, there's trouble ahead. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, like, that's, that's the state that we're in. It's crumbling and kind of in silence. Zelensky's canceling appearances and canceling uh, 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 like uh, events. State uh, events. He tried stuff. to. I think he tried to go to Israel, but Israel said no because uh, he's still <laughs> there. Like no, you, you're not stealing our thunder. And then meanwhile, on the political front at home, Zelensky's deeply unpopular. Uh, I wonder why he's just killed an entire generation of yeah. young people. And, you know, you'd think they'd give him some credit, right? Exactly. Uh, but his defense minister is like, well, I don't know if you saw that big time. Uh, I think we talked about it when it came out. Uh, but the, the big time cover story uh, about Zelensky, where his his like staff members and his high command are saying, like, this man's delusional. He's the only one in here who thinks that uh, Ukraine can retake uh, Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk, like he's the only one here, and he won't listen to anyone uh, telling uh, telling him different. Like he's gone, wow. he's gone crazy, and uh, and and now Zeluzhny, his defense minister, is polling at a higher rate than Zelensky is uh, in Ukrainian elections. But Probably then, anyone though, if you put anyone 
up there and you ask the public of Ukraine who they preferred, they would not opt for Zelensky over anyone. Well, I mean, it would it's be not... interesting to know who's more favorable, Putin or Zelensky. That would be the interesting question to ask <laughs> the Ukrainian public. Well, it seems based on polls, like it's not uh, it's not a complete blowout. But it is a uh, it is insane for a quote like a wartime president uh, who's uh, you know loved by the West, a, a media darling, someone like that. But he's always been just a, a fall guy. But I mean, like the 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 guy that the U.S. backed before him, uh, Poroshenko, he's part of the coalition that looks like they're about to uh, you know rock Zelensky shit. And... No, you think they're gonna do a Count Chocula coup and put. Uh... That guy back in. I don't think I don't think they they put him back in. But he's, I think you know he's he the chocolate robber baron. That's yeah. how he made his money. Is, is by so yeah. Uh, that's why I, I always mean, call him Count Chocula. He's my my homie. Yeah, and he's a, he's a, he's such a character. I mean, but even he was talking about. He was one of the people who was talking about uh, like how this is really a war for NATO expansion. So I mean, maybe they'll be mad at him for his tongue slipping. But uh, <laughs> the, he's part of that big coalition with Zeluzhny and. With the uh, uh, that guy Klitschko, who was also a, a major U.S. Uh, stooge, who is the current mayor of Kiev, who you gotta also, feel sorry for him though, man. He had a, he took many blows to the head over yeah. many years. Yeah, well, I'm sure that makes him more pliant for people like Victoria Nuland. Um, but I mean, this whole thing seems to be unraveling for Zelensky, and it, a lot of that hasn't been in the American press, aside from that, like that the cover story, but the day to day grumblings of this. I don't know. Something something big is happening. It, it, we were all saying this when the this war started. We were like, "This guy Zelensky, he's gonna end up like Nor. He's gonna get like Noriega eventually, right? Like yeah. he's not like we're all loving him now. He's getting a lot of press, but he's throwing in his lot with the people who are like the most duplicitous people in the planet. I mean, and he didn't have to be fair. Out. He did not. He got told how things were gonna be. I don't. I think that he is uh, like the the way that Leslie grows described harry truman and the atomic bombings he said he was like a little little boy on a toboggan yeah i feel like that's Zelensky. it's actually i I don't i don't exactly feel sad for him because he could he didn't have to do it was it was narcissism that made him want to do this in the first place but yeah well he was a stooge from the beginning i mean he was he was going to sign that agreement he was going to sign that agreement which would have been the, the thing to do and he just got told no. And yeah. that was why he said didn't know. He if he'd been left to his own devices, this war wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Uh, the, the the Minsk Accords. He would have yeah. He no, I mean I mean the agreement. I mean the Istanbul thing. I'm talking oh, about well, the Istanbul. His yeah. government was about to sign that. And then the US just said no. I mean they were a signature away from it. They the, the Russians had agreed to really reasonable terms and they were going to basically restore the as I understand it, they weren't they were going to rescind the uh, recognition of donbass and uh, so on um, i mean this was the, yeah, they would they, have allowed them to have formal sovereignty over that as long as they allowed them some autonomy and stopped shelling them and then and Zelensky was okay with that apparently they were one signature away and then boris johnson says i've come with a message from the emperor and you are not to sign this yeah uh, I, I don't know if you got the chance to read that lobster magazine article on Zelensky, uh, but it, it's very good it's very detailed about like the rise of this guy and how uh, during his, like the campaign for presidency, one of his key backers was a guy named uh, uh, Igor Kolomoisky, who was a major Ukrainian oligarch uh, uh, on the board of Burisma, which, you know, of Hunter Biden fame. Uh, but he's also the guy who funds the uh, 
he funded and helped found the Azov Battalion, uh, which, you know, neo-Nazi, you know, pro-Ukrainian nationalist group. Yeah, this guy's Ukrainian all over the place. Area. And he also funded the Sheikh Mansour Battalion, which is a battalion of Chechen, uh, like, Muslims. Yeah, they're, they're jihadis. Well, he's got they, a like, jihad. It's a, it's a McJihad franchise. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, a McJihad franchisee. And, uh, the, uh, but this guy, Kolomoisky, is behind both of those. Him, he himself is Jewish. He's funding radical Muslim terrorists and radical anti-Semitic terrorists. Uh, he's also got Zelensky. He also owns this, the television station that Zelensky's show, Servant of the People, was airing. And the, the way their elections work is that you're not allowed to show like political ads in the days leading up to the election. So uh, what they did was just they just aired Servant of the People for like like a week <laughs> over and over again, cementing like Zelensky as this you know presidential role. Uh, and in this Lobster Magazine article, they note that the only like break in this on this television station was to show a documentary about an actor who became president in America, uh, our boy Ronald Reagan. Uh, but you know, the Ukrainian one of the it's in Ukrainian, there's a yeah. Ukrainian language documentary on Ronald Reagan, yeah. But the funny part is they when they dubbed Ronald Reagan's voice, guess who did the dub for the voice? Zelensky. Yeah. So, like, did they he just, do a Ronald Reagan impression at least? I do, I don't know. I don't think I I haven't heard it. So, you know, maybe it's like really fun and really. Solid. I'd like to hear Zelensky doing like, Mister Gorbachev, tear down this wall, <laughs> but like in Ukrainian, but trying to do the voice and that gravelly that be, uh, Zelensky voice. Yeah. And they could have Mr. him with Gorbachev. the uh, dyed the the dyed hair, you know, uh, that like Reagan had. I mean, yeah. But well, I mean, the, is... the forces that brought Zelensky to power, I mean, it's very clear that he's a stooge in in like every way. He's an actor. He's a guy who got caught up in, you know, the political affairs that are bigger than him. And I, I don't even think he understands what's going on. Uh, but because he, he seems to have embraced this role as the savior of Ukraine. But anyone with any serious political chops would have understood that he's like in a stooge role. If you read a book cruel. about history, then uh, you know what happens to people who become American stooges like that. You know what happened to Noriega. You know what happened to Gaddafi. You know what happened to all these people. Uh, so, I mean, Gaddafi didn't really ever become a stooge. He just tried yeah, to be friendly. Have yeah. he tried to have decent relations? But yeah, I mean, that's true. But, like, you can't make the Hmong, the Hmong tribesmen. That's a good group to look at. What happens when the U.S. makes you its friend? Yeah, um, Suharto. The they the IMF and so on. The US is the US brings them up thirty years Saddam later. Hussein. Mobuto, yeah, Hussein at one point. Mobuto. I mean, Hussein's problem was the US didn't want Iraqi oil on the market. Like they had boosted him at one point and backed him to attack Iran. But when it came down to it, Iraq has so much oil that if they put it on the market, it would mess with the the bankers and the oil companies and such like and the British. So they're like, you, you, we actually need you to not. You need you to be an enemy, and that's where where he got he got put. Um, I think it was Zelensky. They should, to be kind, they should just take him, find one of their cocaine trafficking proxy armies uh, where they're doing business, and put Zelensky in some sort of cottage there with an ankle bracelet, so he can't really go around. He'll be in like witness protection, <laughs> sort of. And then he'll have an unlimited supply of cocaine, and he can just retire that way, and and with you know, with sort of a pension for for his services to the empire, but yeah. paid in cocaine. Well, that it's been reported be his that his his uh like stash of wealth that that they've been able to like skim off the top of this Ukraine aid deluge is like, uh, like in the billions. So 
uh, or at least a hundred millions. Uh, so he he'll be fine. I, if he, no, if no, he, he may be dead, war, he may end up dead. I don't yeah, know. I'm to say if he makes fine. it through the war, if he makes it through the war alive, then he'll he's going to end up probably in like Miami or some other some other country chilling for the rest of his life. And yeah, maybe he'll he go could... on tours and he'll give speaking tours. Maybe he'll get an honorary position at like Columbia University lecturing on international politics. And, uh, you know, people will take pictures with him. He'll get a book deal. He'll uh, get a podcast. And, uh, yeah, but that's assuming he makes it out. If he makes it out, there's reward. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if he... he may end up as one of those infamous people in history who really just got swept along w without, you know, without really having much in taking much initiative themselves. Yeah. I mean, he's going to, he's like, he's almost like a different version of. Lewinsky. So Lewinsky and Zelensky, they even rhyme. And then they're both kind of historically occupying positions of, of infamy that they didn't quite deserve, especially Monica. Uh, I don't, I think that oh, her, yeah. the way that she had to deal with all that was not fair. And her transgressions were much smaller than Zelensky's. I mean, she was involved in adultery. So naughty, naughty Monica, but um, Zelensky, <laughs> what do you even say? All right. I think that we have said enough about Zelensky now and uh, as much as we need to about Gaza and such for the moment. So Bryce Green, once again, thank you very much. Aaron Good, thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon for first access to Devil's Chess Club and for all new and past episodes of the American Exception podcast. And please check out FourDiedTrying.com. These were four leaders who got taken out of the game. They were on the same quest for peace and justice. They had to pursue this as though they were part of a democratic society, but their enemies were essentially fascists. If they can't win the day through our rigged democracy, they can just murder their enemies. But now, even after having spilled so much blood, the empire is in a weak position, as we were just discussing with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Are we witnessing the end game on the devil's chessboard? It looks that way.